Take the power of crowdsourcing, add AI into the mix, and the options become endless. Welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast. I'm your host, Todd Wyant. This is the show where we empower you to transform industries by championing innovation. You're invited to join my mission to embrace and share the innovations transforming the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing industries. If you like our show and you want to know more, check out our new website, bridgingthegappod.com. And please share with your friends and coworkers while leaving us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I'm excited to welcome back Christopher Riddell, a senior solutions specialist and experienced BIM manager at Applied Software. He is also the host of our sister podcast, The AEC Disruptors. Welcome back to the show, Christopher. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, so would love to start by just what does good design mean to you? You know, um, I would say good design is responsible. Uh, when we design anything, whether it's a product or a building, we need to mm -hmm. think about who's using it. Mm -hmm. uh, especially nowadays, responsibility may be in terms of sustainability. Uh, I think it needs to solve a problem. So, you know, good design solves a problem and it's honest. So I'm a firm believer in the form follows function, which is a term in architecture where the uh, the function of the building really designs the build, the exterior. Uh -huh. And uh, I was actually looking up and Steve Jobs once said that it's not so much about what it looks like, but how it works. Mm. Um, so I would say that's kind of what I would believe good design is. Gotcha. Uh, so we've heard that, you know, the, the line data is king. Mm -hmm. uh, but what about the, the difference between simply just making data and then being able to use and leverage that data? Yeah, so uh, we're sort of in a sea of data, uh -huh. right? Um, you hear the term big data now, so there's abundance of data out there. and But data is meaningless if you don't do anything with it. And so, yeah, data is king, but if we don't understand how to analyze it, how to use it to forecast, predict, uh, then all we have is just a lot of stuff to sift through. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's even more overwhelming now because of the ability to pull all this data together. And so what we're gonna find in any industry is we're gonna, the people who are most successful are gonna be the ones that could synthesize all of that data mm -hmm. and be able to predict, um, determine outcomes, and sort of use it in, in that advantage. So using that as kind of a, a jumping off point, one of the, the big new buzzwords is around generative design. What does that mean from a high level? I would say generative design, think of it as co-design, uh -huh. okay? So um, you as the designer are working with a computer. Okay. So in the old way, uh, you would have your brain power mm -hmm. and you could use maybe a computer, but you'd have limited design options that you could kind of come up with. With generative design, what happens is you have you, but then you include AI algorithms, cloud computing, and we're able to allow the computer to synthesize and optimize and create thousands of options. Hmm. So fundamentally, when somebody says, hey, what is generative design? It's co-design. It's a human designing with a computer, and both are doing what they do really well. A human setting constraints and the computer running through algorithms. Gotcha, so forming kind of that partnership instead yep. of outsourcing it all to partnership the with the machine nice uh, so I was reading about uh, a new kind of cool innovative project that LMN architects out in Seattle was doing uh, and they were designing this new concert hall for the the Boxman School of Music out in the University of Iowa uh, and it needed to perform seamlessly for all the acoustic and be a reflector of light and air distributor and then be a, a cool architectural piece mm -hmm. uh, so you know no 
small test there. Yep. <laughs> uh, they, they put a lot on this project, but uh, they use generative design to be able to come up with different options. Mm -hmm. Do you see generative design as something being used more on like a, a really specific project like that or a full scale from A to Z designing the project? Uh, I think both um, because it has its advantages. So anytime you try want to optimize a solution mm. or sift through a bunch of options, there's going to be a play for generative design. In that one, they were able to sort of dissect their building into a bunch of parts. So they maybe only focused on the ceiling or they only focused on the exterior or they only focused on something else. Uh -huh. So getting all of those pieces solved, generative design is perfect for that. But then mm. we'll see where we could start in that early schematic. but you might go all the way through into manufacturing. So mm -hmm. it could really go the life cycle of a project, not just for one specific instance. And I've even seen examples on large scales, like a, a city block, where if you're a developer and you say, hey, this is my program, uh -huh. what is gonna increase my ROI? I wanna know exactly what is the optimal layout here. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's no too small of a project, but there's also no too big of a project either. Interesting, mm -hmm. very cool. Uh, so, Christopher, can you speak to the, the programming evolution that kind of gave way to generative design? Yeah, um, and, and at least for this conversation, I might speak more from the AEC perspective of sure. the programming. Uh, but what we saw happen was there was a lot of people in the very beginning of Revit would use um, C Sharp, which was a programming language, okay. and they'd use it to create add-ins and stuff like that so they could expedite some workflows. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you might be a batch print button or, or something you would see on a ribbon. Mm -hmm. uh, then what has started to happen with the evolution of things like Dynamo and Grasshopper, these two visual programming languages, mm -hmm. we started to get give way to the masses a little bit. So now people, like common people like me, could now understand uh, the computer programming aspect of it. We could dig into the API of something like Revit or Rhino, mm -hmm. and we could start to start to design that way. Mm. After we got past that part, so now we've we've gone from being able to create add-ins that only computer science people can, to yeah. creating visual programming that something like I could do. Now we're looking at the generative design part that actually taps into the visual programming part. And gotcha. so, at least from the AEC perspective, that's sort of the evolution, is it's gone from a very hard-coded uh, computer science type of workflow, a little easier for the common man, and then now moving into generative design that kind of builds on the other. Uh, so becoming more user friendly as we yeah, go along it, here. It really is because, I mean, when you think of visual programming, computer programming, it's kind of scary to think about, uh, even more scary to try to do, mm -hmm. but we're trying to make it user friendly so it's not just like the elite 10% have the ability to do generative design and really everyone mm -hmm. would have access. Nice, cool. Uh, so I, I read a quote from Stan Allen, who was an architect. He was also the, the former dean of Princeton University Architecture School, uh, and he once compared the, the digital and computational by explaining that digital is state of being, it's a condition, mm -hmm. uh, and, but then on the computational side, it's an active process. So it seems like kind of thinking through generative design, it would be most helpful to think of it as that active process. Uh, and so my kind of my question, how, how should you go about mapping out and defining the goals of a project before using generative design process? You did your homework. <laughs> Are you sure you don't? It's an interesting to, topic. Should I interview cool. you? Why am I the one answering the question? Uh, yeah. So process, right? Mm -hmm. um, generative design is a fundamentally an iterative process. Okay. So we allow the computer alg algorithms to run through and do what they do best, mm -hmm. but there's still going to be that 
time where you as an individual are going to have to go through and iterate through those options. Mm. So it's still a process. When it comes to mapping that out, the only way you can get to the generative design part, to all those different design options, is you as the user have to be able to sort of create some constraints to rules. So you really have to think about the end goal. You can't just start with generative design. Mm. You have to say, okay, what am I trying to achieve? How am I going to get there? These are the things that I'm going to establish to, to do that. Mm -hmm. And then as you go, because it, it's an iterative process, you're, it, it's never stagnant. It, you're always kind of going and checking against metrics or trying to optimize something. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, it's not a just you do it once and it's done. But if you don't set that solid foundation in the beginning of what you're trying to get to or what you're trying to achieve, right. there's no way you'll even be able to figure out the, the design options because it it's co-designed for a reason. We have to give the computer something. If we don't, it, it, it won't run. Sure. Um, so, and I think that's kind of where he <clears throat> he would be getting at is with that is uh -huh. it, it's never stagnant and you have to sort of do your homework, put it in in the beginning, and then you kind of let it let it do its thing. Yeah, so start with the end in mind and then work backwards. Yeah, and like whenever we do dynamo graphs or training mm -hmm. or anything, you always start with the end in mind because when you look at that last piece, whatever you're trying to do, a mm. wall for instance, you would have never known that you would have started way down the line with a, with a point. Mm. You know, like you, unless you did it a lot, you just wouldn't know to do that. So we even talk in that sense to start with the end and think back and sort of you know, de-engineer it and say, okay, well, what am I trying to achieve? This is what I'm trying to do. How am mm. I gonna do that? Just like we would do for any goals in life, what's my goal and then backtrack, how am I gonna, how am I gonna get there? Yeah, so with thinking of the end in mind, it kind of shifts the, paradigm to be really trying to figure out how to solve the problem mm -hmm. instead of the, the tool yep. and figuring out the tool. Uh, how do, do you go about this mind shift in the industry? You know, um, it, it, you sent me an article that I think had a great analogy where it talked about GPS. And with the GPS anymore, we kind of let it dictate, whether we use Waze or Maps, whatever we want, we yeah. kind of let it dictate the route for us. We don't think about how that works. Uh -huh. We just care about driving, and that's the fundamental thing we're focused on. Right. So like I recently this weekend went to Gatlinburg with my wife, and I didn't care how I got there. I punched in the, the address, and as long as I got there, that's all that mattered to me, right. so I had two constraints, destination and as soon as possible. How I got there didn't matter. And so I just kind of blindly followed it. Mm -hmm. um, and so because not trying to master the tool, if I was trying to master the GPS, I want to dictate how I got there. Mm -hmm. So for generative design, it's a similar thing. Let generative design, those algorithms, that computer, um, whatever you're using, do what it does best. And you focus on whatever the problem is. Uh -huh. So like we were just saying, you need to know what you're trying to achieve. If I'm trying to achieve creating a thousand design options of a floor plan, I don't really care about mastering how it got there. All I want to be able to say is, I need to have this program, I need these rooms to be near each other. I have proximity things that I'm looking for, noise things, mm -hmm. and that's what I do best, is figuring out those constraints and rules and then let, let it do what it needs to do. So you really don't need to master the tool uh -huh. because you just need to master what the problem is you're trying to solve. Gotcha. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, but I want to dive into it a bit more. Uh, so architects are known as more the creative types. Yep. Uh, but with generative design, working with the computers more and kind of getting into the, the nitty gritty of the programming, does it take a creative architect and make them more programmer based? Um, I would say no. 
And the reason I would say no is, I mean, fundamentally, you may want to say, yeah, of course you have to think like a programmer now. Uh But if we think about what do we ask, what is it asking of us? As a designer, it's asking me for a set of rules or constraints. When I design any space, Mm -hmm. uh, so say I'm working for... um, working on a hospital. Mm -hmm. There are specific building codes and ADA guidelines. Uh, You know, there are prescriptive methods to even saying that this corridor needs to be, you know, eight feet clear. So there's already rules and constraints that I'm already designing to. If I'm designing a senior living, I may want to be thinking about, is this resident room in close proximity to this dining hall? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want noise to transmit back and forth. As any, you know, any designer, any that's working in a floor plan, they always typically start with adjacency bubble diagrams. So we're thinking about those connections. Gotcha. And so intuitively, we're already thinking about it. What generative design is asking us to do is just document it. And so I would say that it's really not changing the way we think, Mm -hmm. because I'm already thinking about this quarter has to be this wide, these things need to be near each other, Mm -hmm. and this thing needs to be further away from this because of noise. All I'm doing now is documenting what I already knew in my head so that the, the algorithm could recognize those constraints and, and sort of push forward. Gotcha. So I really don't think it's a hard mental shift because we're already doing it. Yeah. Um, we just need to document it. Yeah. So you say it's not changing the way you think. Is it changing kind of the timing of when you think about certain things then? It should. I mean, again, like a really experienced um, senior designer, mm-hmm. they kind of already know all of those things that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. A less experienced designer, perhaps I would start laying out something and then go back to the code and look at all the constraints and do my code research and then mm. start to massage and fix stuff. Mm. Um, so it depends on the experience level. Yeah. But I do think, yeah, it does shift. Now in the very beginning, I gotta think about, okay, what am I trying to achieve? I need to do this, this, and this. All right, how am I gonna do that? I want it to optimize this number and look at this number and do this. Yeah. So yeah, it does sort of shift that thinking forward. Gotcha. Uh, so with generative design, uh, how does that play in with better open collaboration between you know, all the architects, the engineers, even the construction and going on into the trades? Well, first off, it should create more time to focus on the bigger problem because what we can do is we can expedite some of that time it takes to think through options and whatnot. So mm-hmm. we should be getting to a better solution. So overall, we should be getting to a better project. Uh, I've actually read examples of like a contractor that could create graphs to do certain things mm-hmm. that they could then feed that upstream to say the architect. So the architect would then be able to run these analysis to look for um, constructability. Mm-hmm. You know, is what I'm doing actually going to be able to be built the way that I want it to be done? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we could effectively create theoretically cheaper projects in the sense that we don't have that value engineering exercise because as an architect, I used the expertise of someone else, say the, the contractor, uh-huh. on how he or she's going to design something or build something, and I can design with that in mind. Mm. Um, so I think those are the areas that we increase the collaboration is one, we're just going to get a better product, but we're having more time to collaborate. We're being able to tap into the expertise of other um, disciplines yeah. and really use their expertise, but it makes it more repeatable. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, what, what do you see as the main driving factor in this push to generative design? Honestly, I think part of it's keeping up with the Joneses. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's like the shiny new toy, uh-huh. right? Um, and in doing so, as more people push for it, there's also a push for speed. And so everyone expects things faster. You know, we, we live in a society of instant gratification. So yeah. I want it, more designs faster, and the more owners hear about it, they know to ask for it. Um, and so I think it's a lot of things. I think fundamentally it's going to be 
speed and keeping up. Mm -hmm. Because what will happen is there are going to be people that become really good at it, and they're just going to crank out really good designs over and over and over, yeah. and theoretically be able to do more work. You know, I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not, uh, but they will surpass some of the others that are just kind of laggards. Because right. the owner is going to say, oh, well, I want a thousand options. I want the best option. So you as the architect, you do this, I'm going to go with you versus me. Who doesn't? Yeah. So with all those options, you know, you can get hundreds, thousands of different things coming back at you. Where do you even start to analyze those options? It seems like it could get so overwhelming. I, I don't know, honestly. Um, I think it would be overwhelming. I, I think what you do is you have to prioritize what's important to you. Uh -huh. um, so whenever we do any of these generative design um, iterations, mm -hmm. there's some restriction, some constraint that's driving what it does, uh -huh. okay? So that may be adjacency, that may be noise, that may be code related, and so, the computer will help tailor that down first off, and then I have to be able to decide what was the most critical for me. Mm -hmm. Is it prox a low proximity score? Is that what I really care about for this project? Maybe it's you know a hospital and noise that we don't want to have a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. We have like HIPAA things and privacy and all of this stuff, so we need to be able to contain that noise and mm -hmm. conversations can't travel. Uh, so if that's really important, then what I'm able to do is I'm able to, whatever I'm using to get to that solution, I can tailor it to focus more on the noise component. Gotcha. You still may be able to tailor it from a thousand to a hundred, but fundamentally there's still a human aspect to it too. I'm gonna choose what I think is best. Mm -hmm. So what it did was instead of me only being able to conceptualize three options, we've been able to conceptualize a hundred options, but I'm still the one that's gonna ultimately decide that this was the best solution for us. Right. So it, it doesn't completely take me out of it, but I think prioritizing what's important is really the only way to sift through all that extra noise yeah uh, so looking at it from a production point of view for the architect if you give 100 hours to two different architects one's using generative design one's not how does that change the the process for those architects is one able simply to do twice as much work because they're using generative design or unpack that for me I don't think so I think what we'll see what happens it, it's no different than just in at work uh -huh. if you finish a task really fast all that happens is you end up with another task. So you're never catching up. And then at the same time, with all of the options, so we're using generative design, I may have 100 hours to work on it. Mm -hmm. So I may get 1,000 options in two hours, but then I spend 98 hours analyzing those two options and figuring whittling out what I want to do. Yeah, and whittling mm -hmm. it down to an optimal one. The other designer is going to use 98 uh, hours to come up with an option and then mm -hmm. two hours to optimize the option. So I really, I mean, I think there are going to be some that are just going to crank out a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, but I think the common person, I think what's gonna happen is they're either just gonna, they're not gonna get more solutions because ultimately the end goal was a floor plan or right. a building, a project, you know. And so it doesn't matter how much time you give someone, they're gonna use up the time. Sure. Um, and so I think there will be some superstars out there that will use it to enhance their business and it becomes something that's a value proposition to the people they work with. Um, mm -hmm hey, we're gonna get you 10, 10 options and we're gonna do it twice as fast and this, that, and the other. However, I, I, I don't see it, I think those will be the few more than the uh -huh. everyone else, at least in the beginning. Because what's gonna happen is people are gonna spend 98 hours just figuring it out. Sure. You know, yeah. so. No, that makes sense. I don't think it's gonna change it a whole lot. 
Interesting. Uh, so one of the things that is intriguing to me about generative design is kind of this chance to break free of the conventional means and designs that have been used in the past. Do you get the sense from architects that this is, is it exciting or is it an apprehension going on about this? I would say both. Um, there's going to be an apprehension from the there's a lot of architects out there that are nervous about the concept of means and methods because I'm now dipping my toes into the construction world. Mm. And by me dictating how they do something, I'm taking on potentially liability that I never should be taking on. Mm. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of people that just that alone kind of get, well, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to dictate how they built this. I don't really even care how they do it. I just want to be able to tell them what I want and they figure it out. Uh, I, I think it's if you use it right, it can be a friend and can you can um, use it to your advantage. Uh -huh. So I think there are a lot, they may be apprehensive in the sense of, okay, well, how's this gonna increase my liability? Am I gonna spend more time? What am I gonna do with all these options? Mm -hmm. But if we think about what we're actually trying to do, what it's trying to do is create an optimal solution for whatever the problem is. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. Um, so whether it's we're designing a building and we wanna get goes back to being responsible and honest. If we mm -hmm. want an optimal project that you know checks 10 boxes that's sustainable or responsible or you know makes the world better, whatever it is, has a positive impact, that's the end goal. So we shouldn't be afraid of a tool that helps us get there. Sure. Uh, but I do think there will be some apprehension in the sense of, well, I don't really want to dictate what you're going to do. Uh, and that goes to just collaboration in general. Why we we still are a little hesitant because of liability, you know. Yeah. Do you see uh, a generational divide on that excitement versus apprehension? There? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Probably. <laughs> How can I say this without offending someone? <laughs> um, yeah. No. I mean, like, I always get excited by technology. Yeah. Um, but I've also never been sued before. So if there's a senior person that's been involved in a lawsuit or they know more about how that actually will uh, could go down, mm -hmm. of course, they'll be more apprehensive. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the more senior professionals, this is newer technology that it's just something else for them to have to kind of figure out. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also some senior professionals that they may not necessarily have to do this part. You know, the generative design part may be the younger professionals that are really in the model and working on it. Maybe there's a senior designer that him and I, are, or her and I are working together and really going through it. Mm -hmm. But I would say there probably is a little uh, hesitation on the, the senior experienced uh, aspect of it just because they've seen more. Yeah. But it sounds like you need their input and their knowledge. You do because to be in, able to in a way, anything. I mean, it's the perfect team. It's sure. like anything else with Revit or any of these other things is if you're the senior professional, you're helping provide me with the constraints and rules. Right. I might be the one that's actually like manipulating the software, but I'm relying on before we said it was intuitive, it was in your head. I just need you to tell me it so I can write it down. Mm -hmm. And in a way, we might find that even those conversations start to help push knowledge downstream because before I may not have ever been able to tap into what you what you think and now I have the opportunity to do that because I need those rules I need those constraints so that we can get to our end goal um, and so it's not so much intuitive to you it's something you're you're sharing mm -hmm. so you set me up perfect for yes. my, my next uh, question it's like topic. I knew what the question was <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, so it, it sounds like you're able to really take that real world knowledge that experience and memorialize that mm -hmm. uh, that expertise which would only heighten 
the ability to, to do really cool things on the, the project and kind of push the design boundaries further. Yep. Am I reading that correctly? Or how should the industry look at generative design, friend or, or foe, with all that in mind? Yeah, no, I think that's a good way to look at it is if we can create these algorithms that think like a human, mm-hmm. um, we can start to replicate a little bit that same behavior. And so now we have this expert designer and we just love, you know, I, I've learned the most from designers or whoever, when we sit down together and they talk through their thought process. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I'm drawing this here because of this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. Or I would do something and their response would be, well, did you think about this over here? And let me tell you why I would have done that. Yeah. So. But that doesn't happen all the time, and not everyone gets the benefit of having that type of relationship. So by memorializing the expertise, we really would, in a way, capture some of what that individual would have told me Mm -hmm. and can um, replicate that. So it'd be like the closest thing to cloning that person. I can now think like them to some degree. Uh, It would never be the same. I mean, obviously, we can't replace people. Sure. Uh, But if all of a sudden I knew that there was five things I should look for every time I design a floor plan, and the guy I was working with would teach me these five things, I could put those as my five rules, Mm -hmm. you know, and then all I have to do is tweak those. Uh, More importantly, if it's designed in a way I could give it to you, and you may not necessarily what five rules that needed to be addressed, Mm -hmm. but now it's there and you say, oh, okay, I didn't know I needed to think about clearance of a corridor, now I do, and this is what I need it to be. And so yeah, I I think it should be friend. I mean, I don't, we should never be scared of technology. it sh- it's only there to enhance us. Right. And I always say all the time, I mean, technology is really, I'll never propose technology as a solution to any problem uh, because I think there are effective ways that you fundamentally need to understand the problem before you get there. Yeah. And same thing for generative design. Before I can start playing with the technology, I need to know what I'm trying to do. Right. Uh, so shifting focus into the construction part of generative design, mm-hmm. uh, how can a construction site kind of optimize their strategy for assembling a building? You know, that's that one's kind of interesting, and it kind of goes to memorializing a little bit because mm-hmm. I'm in a way, I could capture how maybe the optimal way of putting up a concrete building, uh, and I can replicate it and make it repeatable. Mm-hmm. So we would be able to sort of analyze and figure out what is the best solution. Todd, does the he is the best at putting up, tilt up concrete, and this is the, um, the way he goes about doing that. Mm-hmm. We can optimize how that works, and then we can now pass it on to Alyssa or Christopher or whoever so they can follow your methodology. Mm-hmm. There's also an area in which you could almost do scenarios and how you would construct something. So, you know, maybe I'm trying to decide how I'm going to do the, the trusses of a, or put up the trusses of Mercedes-Benz Stadium here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I need to think through the staging process. Well, it would have been really expensive to figure all that out in the field. Well, potentially I could use generative design to run through options to optimize based on your experience mm-hmm. and come up, okay, what is the optimal solution for putting this together we can create virtually free scenarios because it's all virtual yeah. and I can then start to think about okay well if I layer this first and then do this and then I can put this up under it it supports all of these things and and I think that's where we'll see opportunities uh-huh. and so it's gonna really be whether it's analyzing the staging of how to do something how to build up a building or memorializing how it was done to begin with I think those will be aspects in the in the construction industry Catch it. So it helps to verify your game plan before you have to do anything. Yeah, I mean, you're really 
Yeah, I mean, it's no different than BIM modeling that we do all the time. Uh -huh. You know, we build it virtually before we get into the field because it's cheaper that way. It's just taking it to that next step. So now I can start to really dive into you know, how am I going to put this together because it's really complicated. Mm -hmm. And is there an optimal solution that maybe can expedite my time, potentially reduce material, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so I, I want to talk about Autodesk Project Refinery. Okay. Uh, so first, kind of what is that? And then what lessons can we learn from that? So Project Refinery is really Autodesk's take on generative design. Okay. And it uses, it's still in beta, so I mean, half the time I, I struggle how, getting it to do what I want it to do. But ultimately what it is, is it uses Dynamo as its programming language. Okay. And so what I'm able to do is I'm able to, in Dynamo, create a graph to do something. So for instance, I was making one to lay out just a, a, a floor plan. It would mm -hmm. pull information in from Excel, it would create bubbles, and it would position them based on adjacencies and noise, mm -hmm. kind of things we talked about. All you would do is you build your graph to be able to do it once. Once you get it to do it once, you then you just need to make sure you have some metrics in there to track. So you could mm -hmm. create a proximity score or a noise score or adjacency score. Mm -hmm. Once you're done with that, you can take it into Refinery, which is really a web-based platform, and which you're, what you're able to do is you can run your graphs there. And so you can choose to optimize a number, minimize a number, maximize a number, whatever you want to choose based mm -hmm. on the inputs we created in Dynamo. Okay. And then you get all your options and you have thousands of options and it creates all the different versions and you can sort by what has the lowest proximity score, what has the lowest adjacency, whatever was important to me. Mm -hmm. um, there's graphs that we can look at, there's uh, different metrics you can determine what is the optimal solution. Once you figure out the optimal solution in Refinery, you can push it, whatever it decides, push it back to Dynamo. So now Dynamo knows these inputs were the optimal solution, and then mm -hmm. from Dynamo you can push it into Revit if we were actually creating a space. Gotcha. So okay. it's kind of this workflow of build it once in Dynamo, make sure it works, mm -hmm. pass it off to your team. They can use Refinery to create um, studies and tests and optimize. Mm -hmm. Once you figure out that perfect solution, it goes back to Dynamo and then into Revit. Gotcha, cool. Uh, switching focus, putting the spotlight on manufacturing. I would assume generative design would allow for you know faster prototyping and really reduce the time to market. Can you speak to some of these benefits? Yeah, so on the manufacturing side, I think where it's used the most is what's called um, topology optimization. Okay. Um, and so what that is, is imagine taking a, a solid block that needs to be able to support 20 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens during topology optimization is we analyze that and figure out how much material can we take away from the solid block, block um, to reduce the weight, mm -hmm. but maintain the strength. Uh, so with generative design, we can create thousands of options to figure out what is the optimal solution for what this block needs to be, because mm -hmm. it doesn't need all this material. It only needs a certain amount of material in certain places. So that's one application. Mm -hmm. What that does is it reduces cost, material, manufacturing time, development time. Mm -hmm. So they are able to go to market faster. Other opportunities or solutions is in combining parts. So, you know, my human brain may only be able to think about that I need these four parts to do this one thing. Mm -hmm. 
I can optimize it, maybe it's for supporting something, and I can run it through an algorithm and maybe it determines that I didn't need four, I really needed two, if I placed them in these locations, um, and there again, we're reducing costs. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge driver on the cost side, um, but with all of those, there's also the speed aspect, because now my product's lighter, less material, I got it to you faster, I now know I need two versus one, mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think there's a lot of opportunities there and, well, and then just coming up with different style, designs of products sure. right so I mean if we work for a, a car factory or manufacturer they could use it just to look at what is the optimal exterior design for wind uh -huh. and so there is a design component outside of just how can I reduce the material or the cost mm -hmm. uh, so you touched on some examples there but do you know of any uh, kind of cool examples. examples in the manufacturing space. One thing I saw that was cool was Airbus. Okay. So what Airbus did, and I don't know if I've ever seen an Airbus, but they used a generative design process to redesign the interior partition, how mm -hmm. they sort of partitioned off the different sections. And what they were able to do is reduce the overall weight based on whatever their optimal solution was mm -hmm. to by 45%. Now, what that actually did was that equated to around hundreds of thousands of jet fuel. Or, I mean, they saved jet fuel, and then hundreds of thousands of CO2 emissions were reduced. Oh, wow. Which was the equivalent of about 100,000 cars being taken off the road for a year. Wow. Um, and they did that with generative design. So they were able to optimize, you know, how much, what do I need where, what's the size. Mm -hmm. um, Under Armour uses it for shoe design because what they're able to do using that topology optimization is mm -hmm. they can look at the sole of your shoe and determine you know how much material do we actually need how do we make a lighter shoe that's more flexible yeah. uh, and they can just run through you know iterations and options uh, I've seen examples of the cars I mean I saw I read something about General Motors even used it for a seatbelt they were the seatbelt buckle that could be 20 times stronger and 40 percent uh, less material um, just simply wow. by running it through an algorithm and being able to identify what are we trying to solve? Yeah. Well, this seatbelt needs to be able to do this and this. Does it really need as much material as we're putting into it? Uh -huh. So those are a few. And then again, you always have the car designs and all sure. that other cool stuff. Yeah, nice. Uh, so with generative design, how does that bring a closer partnership between architects and the manufacturer? You know, I think it may go to that memorializing the expertise. Uh -huh. uh, you can imagine if if a contractor could do it, what if a manufacturer was able to design certain type of algorithms that we could use and push that upstream? Mm -hmm. So if we're doing some sort of modular construction project where I need somebody to do the prefab at the very end, uh -huh. if I get their logic, so now I can kind of think like them as a designer. And so... I can use their solutions to ultimately try to get to where we're trying to go. Mm -hmm. So for instance, a good example would be if we were laying out a floor plan and I wanted to optimize the number of panels we use. Mm -hmm. I could, if they created one that they use, if the manufacturer that we're using has this uh, optimization generative design uh, graphs, whatever you want to call it, yeah. if they push that upstream, I can now run that through my floor plan, whatever I'm doing, and I can optimize the layout. And it might be something as simple as move that wall six inches to the left, and that's one whole panel. Uh -huh. Or move it in one foot, and that's half a panel. Um, so I think that's how we can start to bridge the gap between 
the architect and the manufacturer is now I can start to think a little bit like them and they don't have to redo it when they get to it. So they're going to yeah. get a solution that they know without me having to go through all this um, strenuous activity that that's two panels and that's one panel and that's a half a panel. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so tell us about the AC Disruptors podcast. Where can people find you? Yes. Uh, so AC Disruptors podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. I think young people listen to that. <laughs> um, really wherever we can find podcasts. Uh, the idea is similar to Bridging the Gap in a way is I want it to be everyone else's platform for uh -huh. pushing the industry forward. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much for me to talk, it's to listen and to bring people in and so that we can really talk about, okay, what are some cool things that we're doing in the industry? You know, Let's create partnerships and networks to push things forward. I've spoken at some really great events where that was sort of the, the goal was let's push the industry forward. Uh, and, and the goal or the hope is that the AC Disruptors is just that medium, that platform. Uh, we, you know, we welcome anyone that wants to join the conversation to, to reach out to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you know soon we'll have a landing page that they'll be able to go to, yeah. And uh, it's very exciting. Yeah, very cool. Uh, that landing page is the AECDisruptors.com, yes. I believe. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Uh, so I got one more question for you, and it's on how generative design and sustainability kind of work hand in hand. But if you want to hear Christopher's answer to that, you're going to have to subscribe to our podcast. Come follow me. <laughs> Uh, so, Christopher, another big uh, movement in the, in the industry is around sustainability. Mm -hmm. So, how can sustainability and generative design kind of partner? Uh, you know, with movements like the Twenty Thirty Challenge. You know, where does that put the AEC industry? Uh, you know, one thing, kind of like what we talked about, is being able to really optimize solutions. So uh -huh. when it when it gets into design, whether it's for facades or whether it's for energy analysis, whatever it is, uh, ideally we can use these algorithms to come up with the optimal solution mm -hmm. uh, that takes into account all the different constraints and rules. So when we think of like the 2030 challenge, it seems so far away a long time ago and now it's 10 years away you yeah. know so i'm curious to wh where where we are in that uh but with thinking about those things it, it goes back to that whole be responsible um be honest mm -hmm. in our design and this engineered design allows us to get to that more optimal solution before i would have created a fairly sustainable building uh, but it may not have been the most optimal sustainable building yeah uh, we're entering into a time period where it may be necessary to be optimally sustainable and yeah. not just hey I, I checked all the boxes and we're sustainable right um, so I do think that it's going to help push the industry forward to that goal because we can let the computer does do what it does best we can look at these algorithms and we can look at how you know maybe it goes even to material um, reduction so that topology optimization perhaps mm. we start to see some of that on facades of buildings so mm. we can look and recognize uh, you know we have the right amount of material if we're trying to reduce waste mm -hmm. we do that you know maybe this trust doesn't need to be as big as it is so i can save money which ultimately saves the material mm -hmm. um and then just overall you know the overall sustainable energy analysis water conservation all of those type of things all those problems that we could create graphs and algorithms to to really focus on optimal solutions mm -hmm. and if we get it right once theoretically you could replicate that so then the next building maybe there's different rules we put into it but we're still can potentially always find a more optimal solution for there's always gonna be a better solution so i mean we'll sure. never be perfect but i do think it will be more responsible 
because mm. we at least could think about more options. Yeah, no, that's a, a cool way to uh, end the, the, the podcast and looking towards the, the future too. With, yeah. Uh, you know, sustainability is such a, uh, an important thing that we got to figure we, out. We have, yes, we have to figure it out. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks so much for, for joining us yeah, on the podcast and, and unpacking. I think what it was a really cool topic of, of generative yeah, design. Yeah, no, this has been great. I loved it. Yeah, thanks so much. And thank you to those tuning into the show. You like what you heard from Christopher today? You can get more. Subscribe to his podcast, The AEC Disruptors, or go to theaecdisruptors.com for more information. If you're interested in how generative design can work for you, reach out to our sponsor, Applied Software, for a discovery call, or visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. You can listen anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. Until next time, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast, sponsored by Applied Software. Keep innovating.